0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We're in the book of Titus. Uh, The topic at hand is qualifications for elders or pastors in a church. And so today's message is qualifications for elders, part two. And then again next week, we're going to look at the rest of uh, the qualifications or most of the rest. So there might be a part three, maybe a part four. Very important. Um, And just to bring up to speed what we've talked about to this point uh, regarding elders, we said and showed from Scripture that elders were synonymous with pastors. They are also interchangeable or synonymous with bishops. That's a biblical word. Bishop means overseer. So a pastor is an elder as a bishop is an overseer. And pastors, elders, they shepherd people leading and feeding and giving spiritual oversight with an emphasis really on teaching God's word. Um, So we talked about that. We also talked about just these are summary points. We talked about an elder. The word elder means the Greek word is presbyter. It means older man. So someone who is seasoned or a little older in life and also older, hopefully in spiritual maturity. That's what elder means. We also talked about how elders or pastors are selected and appointed in a church. There is a biblical model. We talked about that. It's not just uh, the senior pastor dictating and appointing who the elders are. But the biblical model is that an elder has to be called by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And that that is confirmed through the desires of that man. And it is also confirmed by the saints of that church. And should also be confirmed by the leadership that's already intact in that church if you have elders already. So Paul and Titus qualified as elders. And as a result, they have the authority to ordain or call other elders in the church on the island of Crete. Actually, there were probably several house churches that needed elders. And that was one of the things that Paul wanted Titus to do in this epistle. So he's laying out qualifications and elders need to be qualified in very specific areas. So that's what we're looking at. Here's these qualifications. There are character qualifications in terms of character and spiritual development. But there are, are also some kind of job skill qualifications. Uh, the main one being that an elder pastor needs to be able to teach the Bible. has to have a command of Scripture. I believe the elder pastor also has to have the spiritual gift of leadership that uh, First Corinthians, actually Romans chapter 12, talks about. That's a spiritual gift. Then last week, specifically, We started looking at these qualifications in Titus chapter 1, the ones we covered from last week. The main point was that an elder has to have control over his family life. So his family needs to be in order and intact. Not a perfect family, but an orderly family, a godly family, a growing family, no major flaws and deficiencies, family that's going in the right direction, and a dad who can establish order and keep order and maintain order in his family life because he's called to maintain order in church life with a church family, and if he can't do it in the microcosm of his small home, then he shouldn't be trying to do that in the macrocosm of a larger church. So having an orderly home life is a prerequisite for being an elder. We talked about that last week. Specifically, that the elder, if he's a dad and husband, needs to be above reproach, committed to his wife and only his wife if he's married, faithful to his wife. He needs to be a man. We talked about that, a male, because male is leadership, or leadership is male, in the church and in the home, according to God, ever since Adam and Eve were created. 1 Corinthians 11 is clear about that. Uh, so an elder can't be a woman. We talked about that as why. It uh, has totally to do with function. has nothing to do with dignity, worth, or value. Uh, women have babies. There is no greater privilege or really miracle in the world that a woman can bring another eternal soul into existence there's no higher calling um so this isn't has nothing to do with seeing women as inferior it's strictly role women have babies men are daddies that's god's ordained function and then if they have children the elder need to have he needs to have faithful children talked about how titus and timothy talk about both ends of the spectrum if your kids are older. Uh, they can't be carousing and guilty of all these rebellious behaviors when they get older. But if they're younger, they need to be faithful, obedient, compliant children. That's where we left off last week. So that the main point last week was an elder has control over his family. And then today, point two, we look at another area of control that the, the elder pastor has to have. And that's an elder has control over his passions, I call it. And that's uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 7. So let's go ahead and look at that together in Titus, I'll start at verse 5, go to verse, end of verse 8. For this reason, I left you in Crete. So Paul's talking to Titus, who's like a pastor and a co-worker of Paul, and they planted churches there, or there were churches there that need some organization, and they needed to raise up leadership. And so Paul is going to delegate Titus to train up and appoint leaders, elders in these churches. So he tells Titus, Titus, I left you in on the island of Crete, in order that you should set in order what remains there at the churches, uh, starting with appointing elders in every city as I directed you namely, uh, if the men are qualified, and here are the qualifications. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife or one woman man, having children who believe or children who are faithful, uh, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, uh, drunkenness, being unruly, those kind of things. Also, verse 7, that was the family life. Verse 7, we're calling this, uh, he has control over his passions. These are character qualities. For the overseer, also called an elder in verse 5, or a bishop, or the overseer, bishop, elder, pastor must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Verse 8, but rather hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled. And then I'll go to verse 9. He needs to be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he, as a pastor, will be able to both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So those are the qualifications. We also talked about how these similar qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They're parallel accounts. They're very similar. They complement one another. There are some differences, but together I think they need to be taken as a whole of determining what the qualifications are for a pastor in your church. Now, some of you might have been asking up to this point, well, I'm not an elder, I'm not a pastor, I don't ever want to be one, or maybe I'm too young in life right now, so what does this passage have to do with me? Well, if you go to this church on a regular basis, it actually has a lot to do with you uh, in many different ways. For example, I would kind of liken it, we're we're talking about leadership qualifications. And maybe a parallel would be, Um, You have a favorite sports team, whether it's baseball, football professional, or whatever, and they're talking about hiring a new coach. And if you're an avid fan of your sports team, you kind of care who the coach is going to be, and you kind of care what the leadership structure is going to be, and you kind of care who the owner is, and you kind of care what the owner's rules are and who the general manager is, even though you're not the one being considered to be hired as the coach, but you care because you're either a fan of your team or maybe you're a player on that team. And even though it's not directly talking about you and your qualifications, it definitely has an impact on you. So if you go to this church on a regular basis, then this has a direct uh, relation to you because this is God's design of what the leadership should be in the local church and not just this local church, any local church. So if you're a teenager, if you're in elementary school, this matters for you. Especially if you're in, in elementary school, your parents are making you go to this church. They're dragging you to this church. So you should care about the leadership. Is it biblical? Is it pleasing to God? Is it what God wants? Because that's the kind of sphere you want to put yourself in, in an area of compliance and obedience to God's Word. So with that, we'll look at point number two. An elder has control not only just over his family, but also over his personal passions. And I just read these qualifications. Another footnote I want to make. I was at a church at one time as an associate pastor, and they did have a membership Policy, formal membership. Not every church does, but this one did. And it was in writing and in the church bylaws of what the qualifications were to become a member of that church. And one of the qualifications to become a member of that church was you had to meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 to become a member. And I remember reading that thinking, wow. Um, But they didn't really go into detail of it. They just kind of would pick and choose. Some of the attributes there—you know—you need to be above reproach; you can't be addicted to alcohol. And they're saying this is something that every should be true of every Christian. But that is actually taking a certain text out of context and misapplying it. And my point is, First Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 here; these are not qualifications for every Christian. That would skew Paul's meaning here. These are specifically addressed to those who are being considered for leaders in a church. It is true that some of these qualifications apply to every believer, but there are definitely some that don't. Not every Christian is required to be a teacher of the word of God in a formal capacity. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't be because James chapter three, verse one says, let not many of you be teachers of the word. So these are not qualifications for every Christian. Uh, There are lists of qualifications or requirements of every Christian in just about every other book of the New Testament. Uh, Peter says, tells Christians to be hospitable, loving, Romans 12, all these characteristics. So if we want to talk about qualifications for all Christians to be aspiring to, we can find those all over the Bible. That is not why this passage was written. It's not directed to every believer, even though some of those will overlap. Because I think if you do that, you're just confusing the issue here of why Paul wrote this. So let's go ahead and look at it. These are qualifications for an elder pastor, starting with uh, the pastor needs to have control over his passions it's important to keep in mind as we go through through these qualifications that the verbs are in the present tense so paul uh, the holy Spirit God they are concerned about the condition of a man right now is he is he qualified right now the reason that's important is because many good pastors many good elders uh, could be disqualified if you Looked in their closet for skeletons that existed in their closet 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Or they had a sordid past or maybe when they were not even a Christian and uh, were involved in things that would have disqualified them 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So you're not disqualified by something you did as a sinner 20 years ago. It's what is your life's pattern right now as a Christian in obedience to God. That is very important to keep that in mind. And that is the grace and mercy of God, number one. and also gives us hope and as a reminder, God is a gracious God and a merciful God. And His promise is to help Christians grow. If you're a Christian, did you know that you are growing? Believe it or not, sometimes we doubt that, don't we? But God guarantees we're going to grow. It's either through obedience, hardships in life, or just the Holy Spirit uh, either leading us along or pushing us along. But God is going to refine us. And there's going to be trials and ups and downs and... Uh, but God is trying to accomplish sanctification in all of our lives. And so the point of emphasis here for these men is what are they like right now? So let's go ahead and look at an elder has to have control over his passions. i got one, two, three, four, five that I've listed there. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at those. That an elder, pastor, overseer, and these things, these are negative. Because most of the others are positive. He should be this, he should be this, he should be this. Now it's, he shouldn't be this, he shouldn't be this, he shouldn't be this. So what uh, things should not be part of his characteristics? Uh, Letter A, the elder can't be stubborn. I call it stubborn. That's just one uh, translation that might help us wrap our uh, mind around this unique and rarely used Greek word that probably most translations say that the elder should not be self-willed. Self-willed. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward and not self-willed. Well, what does self-willed mean? Well, I said stubborn. Um, Other ways that it's been translated or used. is This is someone who does not listen to others when they need to or when they should. I mean, sometimes they'll listen, but... When their own agenda is involved and they want to get something done that's important to them, they're not really interested in anybody else's agenda and they're really not open to advice. And they become myopic, closed-minded, fixated on an issue or a preference they have. And usually it manifests itself in preferences or opinions. This is where self-willedness comes out among leaders in a church and that's why this is so important, they don't listen to others when they should. They don't defer to other people when they should. Uh, They are unbending. There are times to be unbending and there are times not to be unbending. There there are times to compromise in a dialogue and there are times not to compromise. And someone who is self-willed will not compromise when, no, there's a time to compromise because you're giving deference to others who are speaking wisdom and maybe even being used by God to speak with the Holy Spirit's prompting and you're not listening, you're not having anything of it. So a self-willed man is someone who's unbending at the wrong time, uh, who is myopic uh, and only has tunnel vision about their agenda. They don't, they're not looking at the big picture. They're pushing for their preferences. They are not yielding to others. Sometimes this can be someone who's dictatorial and likes to be in charge. And they'll sometimes dig in and hunker down in their position when they shouldn't, going the wrong direction instead of being unyielding. Sometimes this manifests itself in lording it over the saints. Just in 20 years of working with churches uh, at different churches as a pastor and not as a pastor, I see this is one of the areas where pastors get themselves in trouble the most. And that is, they're not really listening to the people, or the saints, or their elders, or the leadership. I mean, they're, they're hearing it, they're hearing it being verbalized and vocalized, but they're not considering it seriously, they're not yielding. At least, and this, the most common thing is, I see when they're hearing information coming in, they don't stop and pause and become reflective. And prayerful, and maybe even wow. Maybe I need to reconsider my position, my stance, my conviction, or whatever it is. I have seen that time and time again over the course of ministry, not just in churches I've worked at, but friends I know who are pastors, and as they talk about their churches and leadership structures, this is continually an ongoing problem. And one of the things that I I teach at a seminary, and so up there at uh, the Cornerstone Seminary in Vallejo, been there about six or seven years, and most of the guys who take the classes that I teach are already pastors. And they're usually younger pastors. There are some who are on the brink of becoming a pastor and just finishing. And I always ask them, You know, if you're going to become a pastor or you are a pastor, there are specific biblical qualifications, and they know what they are, and we look at them in 1 Timothy 3, we look at them in Titus 1, and then I ask them, out of all these, say, 19 qualifications, what do you guys think is the number one qualification where routinely, from this is just my personal experience for the last 20 years, which one of these qualifications do you think gets abused the most by pastors or men in the ministry? And I give them a second, but it usually doesn't take long for a very quick response or answer. And almost always they will say the same thing. Uh, probably in the area of immorality. Not being faithful to your wife. That's usually the number one answer that I get. And that is true. That is a problem. But it, in my opinion, it doesn't even come close to the real number one answer where pastors get in trouble or leaders at a church. And I tell them the number one area where I think leaders in a church uh, fall, stumble, get into trouble is on this qualification in Titus chapter 1, verse 7 on being self-willed. The number one answer. And I haven't had very many pastors disagree with me yet when I point that out. Um, I actually brought that up to Steve. Pastor Steve Fernandez, who's pastor up in Community Bible Church, he's been pastoring the same church for like 35 years. So he's seen a lot. And I, I shared that perspective with him He totally agreed with me. He said, Cliff, you're right. I have seen it time and time again. So when we started GBF six years ago, and we had these men of God that God brought to us, I I told those men who were going to be prospective elders and deacons, and I just shared with them. as We we went through the qualifications in Titus and in Timothy. And I said, brothers, if you guys are going to consider this position of deacon and elder and take it seriously, and then I asked them that question, what's the number one place where church leaders fall talked about it, and then I told them, in my experience, it's being self-willed. And I still stand by that to this day. And so that is very important among the leadership team as you're sitting around talking about very important decisions that need to be made in the church. And you can have a wrestling match. You need to. And hash it out. And sometimes it takes time. And you've got to seek God's will through prayer. But in the end, we agreed we are not going to move and make important decisions unless we are unanimous as elders. But I cautioned them. Every single one of us, including me, we have to watch out that our pride doesn't creep in to a point where we become self-willed and we're not listening to the other brothers, the other elders. So, uh, to me, that's where we are so naturally vulnerable and susceptible just as fallen, sinful human people. I did want to go to an example of this. Go to, in your Old Testament, this is probably one of the most explicit illustrations Of somebody in leadership who's self-willed and thus disqualified himself, and turn to 1 Kings chapter 11 in your Old Testament. So a little history as you're flipping to 1 Kings chapter 11. You had the first king of Israel, Saul. His qualifications were that he was tall, dark, and handsome. I am not kidding, and as a result, he He did not have the greatest character, but he reigned for a long time, almost 40 years, and then he, God booted him out of there. And then David became king and replaced him. And he was a man of God, and he reigned for decades. And then he died, and then his son took over Solomon. And Solomon reigned as king, and Solomon started out. I mean, he was a believer. He loved God, and yet he had his compromises. And he reigned for decades. And then, when Solomon died, um, his son took over, Uh, and his son was Rehoboam. So, I want to talk about Rehoboam in First Kings chapter 11. Um, Solomon died. He, uh, are we at chapter? Let's go to chapter 12. Sorry, chapter 12, verse 1. At the end of verse uh at the end of chapter eleven verse forty three it says Solomon slept that means he died with his fathers and he was buried in the city of his father David and then his son Rehoboam reigned in his place so Solomon who was a who was a believer was now supplanted by Rehoboam his son and just look at the qualifications of Rehoboam or what his character is like this is very revealing in this short story Rehoboam kind of a younger man so Rehoboam takes over as king he went to Shechem for all this is chapter twelve first Kings, uh, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Now when Jeroboam, this is another guy, the son of Nebat heard of it, Uh, he was living in Egypt, for he was yet in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon. So Solomon's gone, so Jeroboam comes to check out what's going on. Verse 3. Then they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and spoke to Rehoboam, the new king, saying in verse 4, Your father Solomon made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and we will serve you. So here's all the people. This is after the presidential elections, even though it was an election. So you got a new president and they all come on Capitol Hill and they got their protest signs and saying, man, Solomon, his taxes were way too high. That was one of the things that Solomon did. He taxed them out the ears. And he literally did at the end of his life became an oppressive Dictatorial king. It was not good, and the people were suffering and in misery. And so they're protesting, Rehoboam, don't be like your dad. And if you show us some grace here, lighten the load, we will serve you. Was their promise, verse five? Then Rehoboam said to them, "Okay, depart and leave for three days, then return to me." So the people departed. So uh, Rehoboam, the new king, he wants three days to think about this. Should I? succumb and acquiesce to the people's request. Verse 6. So here's what King Rehoboam did. He consulted with the elders who had served with his father Solomon. Now that actually was a wise thing. The, the book of Proverbs says if you want godly wisdom, go seek a counsel of a multitude of other godly people. There is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. He actually does the right thing at the beginning of verse 6. These are experienced men, older men. They're called the elders. They advised Solomon Solomon, many times did not listen to their advice. Sometimes he did. So Rehoboam starts out by doing the right thing and he consulted with the elders who had served with his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, How do you counsel me to answer these people? Should I lighten the load? Should I lessen the taxes? Should I give up a few of my hundreds of chariots? Verse 7, then they spoke to him, saying, Rehoboam, if you will be a servant to this people today and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So in other words, the council of the elder was saying, yeah, this is a legitimate request by the people. Acquiesce to them. Do what they're asking you to do. They will be loyal to you. You will be blessed. This is the right thing to do. Lighten the load, Rehoboam. That is our official council. It sounds like they were harmonious in this. Wow. The unanimous counsel of older, godly, wiser elders saying the exact same thing to you, you should probably heed it and implement it. Well, look what he did. Verse seven. Uh, then they spoke to him. Uh, oh, verse eight. For he get this. Verse eight says he Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders. That is tragic. That is tragic. And like I said, every time I go to a shepherd's conference or a pastor's conference, inevitably I'll meet some pastor who's at a church or in the middle of some schism in their church, and it seems to always be the same reason that somebody forsook the counsel of some other group, whether it was the elders or whatever, and just became defiant and self-willed. And then there was a church split on their hands, or somebody got fired or whatever. So Rehoboam, he forsakes the counsel of the elders, which they had given him. and get So what do you do? When you talk to somebody and as a Christian, and you're seeking counsel and you're seeking advice and you think you're doing the right thing and you're talking to actually godly people in a multitude, and then they start telling you the same thing. And the problem is, they're telling you what you don't want to hear. What do you do when you go get counsel from a whole bunch of people who are telling you what you don't want to do? Well, you go find somebody who agrees with you. And you keep asking until you find somebody who does that. I have seen this time and time again. We are all susceptible to doing this. Oh, he didn't agree with me. She didn't agree with me. He didn't agree with me. He didn't agree with me. And you're like a, a pinball. Do you remember what a pinball machine was in the olden days? They actually have some of those around. And the pinball is just bouncing all over the place. Ding, bing, bing. It's going everywhere. That's what being self-willed or like this is. You're just going to keep going and asking somebody until they agree with you. And then, voila, eureka! I found somebody who legitimizes my opinion. And you really don't care what everybody else said or if what you're saying is even right. Or maybe you think it's right now because you actually found somebody, a needle in a haystack to agree with you. That is what Rehoboam did. But it's even worse. So he rejects and defies the counsel of the elders. And then, and then who does he go ask? Not other godly, older, wiser people. I'm going to go ask my teenage friends. <laughs> That's really smart. Uh, verse 8, But he forsook the counsel of the elders which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. That is scary. Verse 9, So he said to them, What counsel do you give uh, that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Lighten the yoke which your father put on us. And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, Thus you shall say to this people who spoke to you, saying, Your father made your yoke heavy, now you make it lighter for us. But you shall speak to them and say, My little finger is thicker than my father's loins. Boy, if if you thought Solomon weighed you down, I'm going to weigh you down all the more. Verse 11, whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Boy, how encouraging is that? And that's exactly what Rehoboam did. And there is one of the most explicit examples of a self-willed leader. And it was tragic because the entire nation suffered consequences as a result. Let's go back to Titus chapter 1. So an elder cannot be stubborn or self-willed. Character attribute of of controlling passions number two, after not being stubborn, the elder can't have a short fuse. Can't have a short fuse. For the overseer must be above approach as God's steward, not self-willed, and not quick-tempered, says the New American Standard. So a pastor cannot be quick-tempered. Again, these are pretty rare Words that are being used in the Greek text. One good illustration is somebody who just has a short fuse. they just quick to blow up when they don't get their way. And you can see it. Orgalos is the Greek word which comes from orge, which sometimes means wrath, the wrath of sinful people, but also sometimes God's wrath is involved. This is somebody who's just inclined to anger when they don't get their way explosive anger gets angry at the wrong things and, and gets angry at the, in the wrong way. It's not a sin to get angry because you can be godly and be angry. You need to be angry at the right things, right? Uh, Proverbs 13 says that a righteous man gets angry and hates sin and unrighteousness. So a pastor man of God needs to get angry at certain things. Sin, false doctrine, those kind of things. The devil, his works. But you can't be getting angry at the wrong things. And this is especially important when you're part of a leadership team and you're sitting around talking about very important things like your money and your budget and how you're going to spend your money, who you're going to hire, who you're not going to hire, uh, your facilities. Are you going to venture off into a building program? Are you going to go into debt with $5 million to build your new building? These are things that elders and leaders talk about. And those are heavy-duty issues. And emotions rise, and sometimes tempers Flare up, but a pastor and elder among those discussions cannot be exploding when he doesn't get his way. You can be passionate in your discussions. You can arm wrestle, but you've got to love your brothers, your fellow brothers. Defer, heed, yield, pray. Listen to them when they call you on the carpet saying you are getting out of control emotionally. You need to welcome that rebuke. The man of God does, the pastor. And commit all these things to prayer and move slower and see what the Holy Spirit wants, not what you want, not what I want. And there are pastors who explode to degrees of anger that wouldn't surprise you. Um, I hear about those on occasion a pastor throwing his computer through the church office window and et cetera, et cetera. And you're just like, wow. And, he's, and he continued on in his job there at the office for 20 years as a pastor. Um so a pastor needs to have a long fuse, be patient, and reign in his anger. So let's go on to the next one. So an elder can't be stubborn, can't have a short fuse. Well what else he can't be typified by, and that's letter C. The elder can't be controlled by alcohol. Because Titus says the elder pastor literally is not addicted to wine. It takes the word it, the Greek word is a compound word. It's the word wine oinos plus a preposition on the front of it, and that's just he can't be inclined to wine, lead lean towards wine, be dependent upon wine, be controlled by wine, be influenced or addicted by wine. A sign of that is that he can't do without or refrain from alcohol, whether it's just a little bit or a lot of it. And it's easy for people to run to either some kind of medication, drug, or alcohol to Either find relief from stress or the anxieties of life. But a pastor can't be controlled by alcohol. And this is an explicit question we ask our elders and deacons before they become elders and deacons. Tell me about your conviction about drinking alcohol. Do you drink it? What's your view? What do you think is the biblical view? Are you a slave to it? Have you ever been addicted to it? Have you ever abused it? What do you think about now? Uh, that, and we are very explicit on these qualifications, asking them to be honest in their evaluation on this. And it needs to be addressed because it's amazing. Alcohol has been around since the beginning of time and has tempted and caused uh, many people to stumble, even believers. Noah had a problem. He stumbled with the use of alcohol. When He was a, he was a righteous man. He was a godly man. He got off the ark and thankful and worshiped God and then he planted a vineyard and grew a bunch of grapes and decided to make a bunch of wine and oops he drank too much wine and got drunk and he embarrassed himself so there's a, a believer righteous man Noah who struggled and stumbled in that area and so the pastor and elder has to have this in control by the way one of the things that alcohol does is it controls you if you consume it and become dependent upon it it controls you and you lose control yourself that see that's the issue you lose control. and A leader needs to be in control, uh, primarily of his senses, so that he can discern the will of God as he leads the people. That's why in Ephesians 5.18 it says, do not be drunk with wine, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, at first face value, that seems like a weird contrast. Be filled with the Holy Spirit is pitted against alcohol? What? What's, that doesn't seem to be a consistent parallel. Well, yeah, it does. Because what Paul's saying is, If you're controlled by alcohol, then you can't be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Really, only one thing can control you at a time. Did you know that? Really. Whether it's your lusts, your passions, alcohol, or the Holy Spirit of God. And so the the leader needs to be controlled by the Spirit of God as he leads the people. He can't be controlled by alcohol. And then some churches through the years have taken this qualification and said, okay, as a result, an elder and pastor can't drink alcohol ever at any time. And I, I don't believe that at least today. There was a time where I did believe that for years. That if you're an elder and pastor, you can't drink ever. And then we did a study in Ephesians, and I just did study the issue all over again from beginning to end in the Bible, and I concluded that mm, I don't see that. You just can't be controlled by wine, addicted to wine. There are times you need to refrain from wine if you do drink wine by not causing another brother to stumble, another believer. Um, so there are conditions on that. There's wisdom that you need to employ regarding that. And we talked, there. so there's a sermon that I did preach. It was called The Bible on Beer, and it's on the website uh, if you want to check it out. But there are churches who say, no, pastors and elders can't drink wine. As a matter of fact, no Christians should ever drink wine. And I just don't think it's a biblical position. I am reminded of the trip that my wife and I took to Israel this past year. And I was allowed to do the devotional of the day, only one time. There's probably a reason I was only allowed to do it one time. Probably because of the content of my devotion. So <laughs> we're, driving by, we're driving by the city of Cana. So I incorporated that in my devotion of the day. Cana of Galilee. And I said, that is the city of Cana of Galilee. I've never been there before in my life. But the sign says Cana. And this reminds me of John chapter 2 where Jesus did his first miracle. And the first miracle that Jesus did is he turned water in H2O into wine. Oinos is the Greek word. And I said, oinos in the New Testament, that Greek word, always means fermented wine. You can't get around that. And there are Christians who say that actually it doesn't mean wine, it means grape juice. And Jesus actually created grape juice that day. And I said, I just don't believe that's a consistent biblical position. Um, It was actually wine. So God is not opposed to wine or alcoholic fermented wine all the time. There are contexts to it. And then when I was done, uh, the pastor who was in charge of the trip he followed up with me and he did devotion part two. And he and he had 20 of his church members on the bus with him. And he proceeded to tell all of us why Jesus made grape juice and how everything I just said was wrong. <laughs> and so I kept. So I'm going and I'm just kind of sliding down in my in the chair and then hiding behind Debbie and. Uh, didn't know that. Uh, wouldn't have said that. But anyway, thought, fortunately, the uh, the tour guide, Dr. Bookman, who's the Old Testament scholar, he talked to me later and encouraged me. He said, Cliff, you, you were right. Jesus made wine. So it was our little secret. But anyway, the pastor cannot be controlled by Alcohol. So an elder can't be stubborn, can't be short-fused, and can't be controlled by alcohol. Uh, the next thing that the elder can't be is the elder can't be violent. Violent. And my English translation says pugnacious. And I don't think outside of the New American Standard I've ever heard anybody use that word, pugnacious. It must be one of those old King James words and from Shakespeare and has made it from Beowulf and made it all the way down to the present-day modern translation of the New American Standard. Um, but the Greek word is very, again... Used very rarely, but it is very specific in the context it is used. And the emphasis here is on physical violence, whereas earlier orgalos, (short fuse) that's kind of on on internal anger. This word here in d violent pugnacious that's on manifesting your anger with physical violence. That's the point of emphasis. That's what pug- pugnacious means: a fighter, put up your dukes, a bully. So the elder can't be a bully. He can't be pugnacious. He can't get physically out of control. I personally believe this applies first and foremost to his home life, to his marriage, and to the way he raises his children, that he can't be physically out of control. Throwing pots and pans, kicking the dog, beating the children illegitimately, hitting them illegitimately, giving them corporal punishment in an illegitimate, harmful, abusive manner, physically treating his wife in a way that's illegitimate, that's the point of emphasis here. So it is on this physical manifestation of this. And and we do hear this about pastors. It was, boy, just a few months ago, somebody here brought to my attention a very well-known, famous pastor here in America who was arrested because their 15-year-old teenager called the police on them. And the police report that's posted on Google and every newspaper in the world that day, and that week, of this very well-known, famous pastor, who's still a pastor, by the way, uh, the teenager accused the dad of pushing them, knocking him down, choking them, hitting them. That's what the police report said. This pastor is still pastoring. Um, but that's what it talks about. And you'll hear stories of that. It's like two years ago, another well-known, famous pastor, another police pl- plastered all over the world. Because C- the unbelieving world, they like to find these stories of these disqualified or weird, kooky, so-called Christian pastors who have this unbelievable behavior. And they like to publicize it to denigrate Christianity and mock Christianity. And so that's what they did with this pastor, man of God, who beat his wife to a pulp. I think he's still pastoring. Anyway, so the elder the man of God, needs he can't be violent. He cannot be violent, and it starts in his personal life and at home. He's even going to be nice to his pets. Seriously, that's what Proverbs 12 says. Nice to your kitty cat. I would have to be spirit-filled to be nice to a kitty cat. But anyway, nice to your kitty cat and your pets. So the elder can't be stubborn, short-fused, addicted to alcohol, can't be violent. And then the last one there, the elder can't be greedy. Cannot be greedy, not not fond of sordid gain. By the way, uh, it does not say that the elder or pastor can't be rich. It does not say that the pastor can't be wealthy. It does not say that the pastor cannot make money. We'll talk about that in just a second, but what it the point of emphasis is the elder can't be greedy, the pastor, especially the full time pastor who pastors by way of vocation. and I did say because there are lay elders and there are elders who get paid by the local church, and you actually have examples of both in the New Testament. There were times where Paul was a pastor slash elder of a church where he didn't even get paid from the church. He tells the elders in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 20, he calls the elders together. He was in Ephesus for at least three years. Planted the church, pastored the church, raised up leaders in the church, and he said, I'm probably never going to see you again, so I think Paul knew he was going to be arrested and die. And he shared his love with them, but he reminded these elders... Keep working hard. Work with your own hands just like I did because when I was in your midst and when I was among you, I, need, I didn't cover, covet anybody's silver or gold. I didn't go begging for money. I worked hard with my own hands. He had a job on the side that brought in income while he gave his service freely as a lay elder and pastor of that church. And, but there were times where Paul was called and commissioned full-time and actually got paid as a pastor or elder of a certain church. So he's a good example of who did it both ways. But the point was that Paul was never greedy for money. He was not, and what this is cautioning against is somebody who goes into the pulpit or the ministry to try to make money from the ministry. And there are plenty of those today, especially in our culture. America just kind of welcomes that and encourages that, sadly, to become a famous pastor and... Uh, make a whole lot of money being a pastor and making, peddling the word of God for unrighteous gain and income. So the point here is on the motive of why you're serving in the ministry because when you're a pastor, especially a full-time vocational pastor, you do have authority. It's a position of authority. It's a position of privilege. Sometimes there's a lot of, uh, things that you can do, flexibility and time on your own, where if you wanted to, you can manipulate things for your own good, for your own self-interest, for your own pocketbook. We've seen it throughout the church. It was even a problem in Paul's day. That's, as a matter of fact, look at Titus chapter 1 verse 11. Okay, we need godly elders in the church who can Teach the word of God and also expose false teachers because false teachers were a reality. And did you know that there were false teachers even in the churches on the island of Crete that needed to be silenced immediately? And look at verse, uh, verse 11. Actually starting at verse 10. For there are many rebellious men. These are so-called Christian Bible teachers. In the churches, in Crete, the Titus will be confronting. They are empty talkers. They are deceivers, especially those of the, of the circumcision, who must be silenced because, get this, they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach, get this, for the sake of sordid gain. They are doing this to make money. Boy, does America need to hear that because for the last 20, 30, 40 years, one of the most popular versions of Christianity is the health and wealth prosperity gospel of Christianity that deceives and influences so many. It's, it's sad. It's scary. And we know who they are. We know who they are. These are people, uh, they're not guilty or bad just because they make money. But it's because they say that part of the gospel is that God blesses to, or God promises to bless you as a Christian financially if you become a Christian. God promises to make you healthy, and God promises to make you wealthy when you become a Christian. And they pollute and distort and pervert the gospel. That's what's wrong with it. And then they use that message that appeals to the flesh And millions cater to it, and then they manipulate it so that all that money is being funneled to themselves and their personal desires. Some of the most, I was just thinking of some of the most popular ones would be like uh, Benny Hinn. We all know him. He's been investigated for 30 years by the secular world. His estimated value today is 50 million plus. This is just from being a Bible teacher 50 million plus. And then Kenneth Copeland, who I know and used to listen to when I was a new Christian. He's been around for 40, 50 years. His net worth today is, get this, $800 million. 800, Almost a billion. And this is all just from the ministry. And this was so uh, antithetical to the way I was trained, the way I was raised as a Christian at age 19 and beyond. When I was trained down at Grace Community Church under the influence of John MacArthur and his philosophy of ministry and money was that he would never put a price tag on The ministry, ever. So in other words, if somebody asked him to come speak, the only consideration is, does God want me to do it and does it fit into my schedule? He would never uh, give a bill or ask them to give any money. It's either this is what God wants me to do or not, whether I get paid or not. So I heard that when I was a brand new Christian, and I thank God for that. You can't put a price tag on the Word of God, right? And it was funny because John, when he, he told the story of this philosophy that he still abides by, he just got out of seminary. I think he was, a, or he was in seminary. He was a young pastor associate at his dad's church and down in Southern California and a major local university. He asked him to come and speak for three weeks on an issue of like apologetics to like two to 300 college students, and he did. And he never asked them for a price tag uh, to go and preach, but they paid him. And in the end, they gave him, okay, you spoke three times. They gave him a dollar for each time he came. They gave him three bucks. <laughs> he wasn't complaining. He was just saying, oh, that's what God wanted me to have, apparently dollars then uh, and then later on when his new te- his uh, Bible study uh, or his Bible commentary came out the John MacArthur uh, study Bible in like 1997 uh, he gave away fifty thousand of those for free just anybody if you were on the list you got one and it was amazing and God blessed his results so that's That's the kind of heart and attitude that a man of God needs to have, that when God puts you in a position of ministry and leadership and delegated authority, we need to be faithful stewards of it, not abuse it for our own uh, personal gain. And the promise from Jesus when we believe in the gospel isn't health and wealth, it's forgiveness of sin, right? The indwelling Holy Spirit of God, being in the family of God, eternal life forever, especially in the next life but also with the promise of becoming a Christian is possible persecution and suffering, right? We are called not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. That's really uh, the true promise of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. So we can't have a polluted gospel that feeds our baser desires. Well, with that, uh, let's go ahead and close. We're going to commit our time to the Lord and... My heart's desire is that you, especially those of you who are members or regular attenders, to keep praying for your local church. Those of you who are just visiting, you go back to your local church, pray for your elders, your leaders, for God's blessing upon them, uh, that they will be obedient to God and that calling, and God will bless your church and you, really, as a result. That's our heart's desire. We want to be obedient to the Scriptures. Let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for... Uh, this time to gather on the Lord's Day for fellowship and interaction, being with the saints, to be encouraged by one another, to forget about the problems of the week behind us and also uh, the stresses before us ahead in the week, that we can just be at peace with you, knowing you personally. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your perfect life, your death where you absorbed god the father's wrath on behalf of sinners and how you conquered sin and death and satan by rising again from the dead calling sinners to repentance those of us who know you thank you for saving us lord and the the promise of ongoing forgiveness of sin and eternal life with you and god we do pray your continual hand of blessing on our li- our local church on our leaders, our elders, helping us grow, raising up other elders, that your hand of blessing would be on our deacons, our Sunday school teachers, and anybody that that leads in any capacity as we want to do it faithfully in a way that blesses the saints but also honors you. So we commit our time to you. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.